This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 277 of the program. Today is Friday, February 12th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of the people who make this show possible, all of our generous Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us, and that includes Bridget Afridi, Jeffrey Retzlaff, Jeremy McNutt, Name Name, Paul Mooney, and Shannon Brooks. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So this week, we've got another great show planned for you. We, of course, will talk about the second impeachment of Donald Trump. We'll also talk about the confirmation hearings for Neera Tandon, and I will show you the grilling she received from Bernie Sanders, and I'll argue why her nomination is a gift to the Republican Party. Also on the episode, Nathan J. Robinson was fired from The Guardian for joking about the government of Israel. South Dakota's Republican governor sabotaged the voter-approved measure to legalize recreational cannabis. Tucker Carlson uses the pandemic to fearmonger about immigrants. Joe Rogan's reason for not wanting to take the COVID vaccine is bizarre, to say the least. Donald Trump could shake up American politics with a new party. The city of Denver demonstrates why defunding the police may actually work really well. And a conservative journalist used dog shampoo and Fox News decided to defend him. We'll talk about that. And finally, we closed the week by talking about a member of QAnon who decided to leave the cult after a public outburst last year made her a viral sensation. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. I hope you all enjoy what I have planned. Let's get right to it. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the house manager's presentation was well done. Watching the impeachment proceedings for Donald Trump, particularly whether or not the Senate will vote to convict him, it is a little bit bittersweet. And what I mean by that is it needs to happen. I think it's important because you can't just allow a president to get away with whatever he wants because he's a lame duck president and he'll be out of power. I mean, if you incite an insurrection, you should be held accountable. Otherwise, future presidents during their lame duck sessions will be tyrants. So, you know, there needs to be accountability. It's important. But at the same time, what are the odds that he actually gets convicted? I think very, very low. Now, I am pleasantly surprised that the Senate, uh, a majority of them, including some Republicans, voted that it is constitutionally permissible to impeach a president who is no longer in power. That's something that is good to see. However, I wish that they were actually less afraid of their base and would just vote based on whether or not they think he's guilty, objectively speaking. Because if you follow the facts, if you listen to the argument that the Democrats are making in favor of Trump's impeachment, I just, I don't think you can be against it. I think that Jamie Raskin is doing a phenomenal job here. Having said that, though, Trump's lawyers, on the other hand, are not doing so well, to say the least. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed 
what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. We are generally a social people. We enjoy being around one another. Senators of the United States, they're not ordinary people. And boy, this is a diverse group. We still know what records are, right? On the thing you put the needle down on and you play it. I worked in this building 40 years ago. I got lost then, and I still do. I represent the great state of fill in the blank. I saw a headline, Representative so-and-so seeks to walk back comments about, I forget what it was, something that bothered her. I don't want to steal the thunder from the other lawyers, but Nebraska, you're going to hear, is quite a judicial thinking place. If the individual state legislators, legislatures didn't adopt the Constitution, we would not have it. The floodgates will open. As I was going to say originally, it will release the whirlwind. But I subsequently learned since I got here that that particular phrase has already been taken, so I figured I'd better change it to floodgates. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen as bad a defense team uh, as the president sent up, but I have no idea what they thought they were doing. That was the worst opening statement I have ever heard yesterday. And I tell you, I would have fired that guy in the corridor uh, 10 minutes uh, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and Trump himself reportedly lost his fucking mind to the point where he's screaming. <laughs> so this headline from The New York Times basically says it all. Meandering performance by defense lawyers enrages Trump. The former president was particularly angry at Bruce L. Castor Jr., one of his lawyers, for acknowledging the effectiveness of the House Democrats' presentation. And that right there, it honestly, like, it made my jaw drop when I heard him say that. If you are a defense attorney, in what reality does it benefit you to acknowledge how persuasive the prosecution is? Like, who does this? <laughs> I don't know why he thought this was a good idea. He's correct because they are persuasive. Uh, nonetheless, Trump's response is hilarious to me. So Maggie Haberman of the New York Times writes, On the first day of his second impeachment trial, former President Donald J. Trump was mostly hidden from view on Tuesday at Mar-a-Lago, his private club in Palm Beach, Florida, moving from the new office that aides set up to his private quarters outside the main building. Mr. Trump was said to have meetings that were put on his calendar to coincide with his defense team's presentation and keep him occupied. But he still managed to catch two of his lawyers, Bruce L. Castor Jr. and David I shown on television and he did not like what he saw according to two people briefed on his reaction mr castor the first to speak delivered a rambling almost somnambulant defense of the former president for nearly an hour mr trump who often leaves the television on in the background even when he is holding meetings was furious people familiar with his reaction said on a scale of one to ten with ten being the angriest mr trump was an eight one person familiar with his reaction said and while he was heartened that his other lawyer mr shown and gave a more spirited performance, Mr. Trump ended the day frustrated and irate, the people familiar with his reaction said. I think that this is hilarious. I don't feel bad about laughing at Donald Trump's frustration and pain because this is really needed. Like, he is a spoiled child who was never disciplined for his bad behavior. So for the first time, perhaps, in his entire life, in his 70s, he is seeing consequences for his action 
and it's just some consequences, odds are he won't actually be convicted, but just the mere fact that there's a question that he might be convicted, that alone is too much for him to bear. So he throws temper tantrums. He freaks out. He loses it. He can't handle not getting his way. He is like the caricature of like that spoiled rich brat, that elitist prick, that snob that everyone hates. Having said that, though, Trump is lucky that the Republican Party is a bunch of spineless cowards who are too afraid of his base. Like, deep down, I think that they know that what Trump did was wrong, impeachable. But they're not going to vote that way because they're afraid of the base. And when it comes to Todd, uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, I was going to say Todd Hawley. Um, when it comes to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, um, they know that legally they could be held accountable as well. So they're not going to, you know, hold Trump accountable. But, uh, you know, it's sad. I, I think that if you got Republicans off the record, if the vote was anonymous, then we know that they would most likely vote to convict Donald Trump. Not all of them, because some of them are just like brain-dead idiots who are psychopaths, but most of them would. However, I do think that it's important for transparency's sake in a democracy that they do have an open vote. It's just sad that that acts as a deterrent, and it makes them not want to do the right thing. It incentivizes bad behavior because they know that their base is absolutely crazy. I mean, look at the way that Lindsey Graham, like Trump's number one bootlicker, was uh, shunned by Trump's base. Look at how they turned on Mitch McConnell immediately when he acknowledged that Joe Biden was the rightful winner. So nobody wants to face that wrath. Nobody wants to pay the political price to go against Donald Trump. And as a result, once again, he'll get away with it. And he uh, is most likely not going to be convicted. I think they're going to vote to acquit. But if I'm proven wrong, I'll be pleasantly surprised, but I'm not going to get my hopes up because this is America and we never punish bad behavior when it comes to elites. We reward it. So I want to show you two clips from Tucker Carlson's program that in total demonstrate two things that are really important. One, that he is a charlatan, and two, that he is a very effective propagandist, perhaps one of the most influential propagandists in the country right now, and that makes him particularly dangerous. Now, when it comes to COVID-19, he's kind of been all over the place. He cited skewed numbers from quack doctors to downplay the seriousness of the virus. He's gone back and forth on whether or not masks are effective. And now, to his audience of millions of mostly older viewers, he is fear-mongering about the vaccine. Oh, quite frankly, she says, we need to censor people's views on the COVID vaccine. Now, remember, Melinda Gates is not a scientist. She did not develop this vaccine. She has no background in epidemiology or any relevant discipline. She worked in the marketing department at Microsoft. But she's the wife of a billionaire. That's why she's on television. It's why she's allowed to control what you're allowed to say about the drug she is demanding you inject in your body. Is this really science? Not even close. It's oligarchy. And all the billionaires are participating in it. Nobody cares what Melinda Gates thinks. Nobody cares. Now, overall, if you watch that, you might just think at face value, well, this is really more about big tech than the vaccine because he's just saying, look, I'm making a free speech argument. Big tech should not censor misinformation and fear mongering about the vaccine. That's the argument 
that he's making. But in the process of making this argument, he is priming his audience to believe that the vaccine might actually be harmful. Because think about the things that he's bringing up. It's very specific. So if the vaccine is being pushed by oligarchs, and since oligarchs are bad, well, perhaps we should be skeptical about the vaccine. Perhaps elites who are trying to stop us from questioning how safe the vaccine is may actually have some ulterior motive. Perhaps there's evidence that the vaccine isn't safe and they're just trying to stop us from discovering it. I mean, this is exactly how priming works. You get your viewers to think about something by not actually saying what you want them to think about. This way, they think that they're coming to that conclusion by themselves. So he's saying very particular things, very deliberate words that get you to think about the vaccine in a particular way. Because we all know in America that oligarchs are bad, but ultimately he's trying to sow doubt about the vaccine. And the way that you delegitimize a vaccine is to bring up people who are not trustworthy, such as billionaires and oligarchs. And if you tie them to it, then their lack of legitimacy hurts the legitimacy of whatever you're trying to delegitimize. I mean, it is an incredibly nefarious, albeit effective way to convey information, to convey a particular point in a really insidious way. Now, in this next clip that I'm going to show you, he also talks about COVID-19, but his tune here is entirely different. Now, he's not necessarily going to downplay COVID-19 seriousness. He's not going to bring up the vaccine, but what he is going to do is establish that COVID-19 is serious and the government is taking COVID-19 serious, although he then turns to a different issue entirely. So he's going to set up this segment by using COVID-19, and he's hoping that your uh, beliefs on COVID-19 influence the way you think about this next subject, immigration. Last month, the CDC issued a press release that begins this way, quote, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is expanding the requirement for a negative COVID-19 test to all air passengers entering the United States. Testing before and after travel is a critical layer to slow the introduction and spread of COVID-19. The strategy is consistent with the current phase of the pandemic and more efficiently protects the health of Americans. Got that? It's all about the health of Americans. And that's why every human being who enters this country by air must first present a negative test for the coronavirus. That includes American citizens. There are no exceptions. Corona infection, in fact, is the one universal reality of the human condition. We are all potential incubators of this deadly violence, vi virus. But it doesn't end there. Travelers who test negative for COVID must still wear masks at all times. And that includes while on board the airplane or while walking through the airport. If you don't have a mask on, you had better be actively chewing. Otherwise, prepare for a steep fine and the possibility of never flying again. Nor is one mask necessarily enough. Tony Fauci has announced we ought to consider wearing three masks at once. A paper petticoat for your face. That's how serious our government is about fighting this global pandemic. But of course, you knew that. You've watched it. You know that the risk is imminent and profound enough that your children likely have been out of school for a year. Your business may be shut down right now. Your parents may have died alone, unable to hold your hand in the final days. The United States itself bears no resemblance to the place you once knew 12 months ago. But those are the sacrifices you have been asked to make, and you have, and for good reason. COVID is dangerous. It's existentially dangerous, they keep telling us. The authorities are more than willing to destroy your family and your country in order to protect you from this virus. 
That's their public position, stated every day. Do they actually mean it when they say it, though? Those pictures of California Governor Gavin Newsom eating a maskless dinner in a crowded room at the most expensive restaurant in America were one indication that, no, maybe they're not entirely sincere about their COVID policies. Maybe it's kind of a sham. Maybe there's one standard for you, a member of the despised and much-bullied plebe class, and another very different standard for politically favored groups who can do whatever they want. Now, you'd hate to think that could be true in a country like this, a country with such a long and noble history of egalitarianism and equality under the law. Unfortunately, there has been growing evidence of that double standard. Now there's hard proof. Tonight we've learned the Joe Biden administration is releasing thousands of foreign nationals living here illegally into American neighborhoods without bothering to test them for the coronavirus. People from countries with high infection rates living in crowded conditions sent forth into the American population like COVID isn't real. That's happening. It is the official policy of the U.S. government. On Friday, the White House was asked about this policy, and here was the response. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection is saying that they're having to catch and release some migrants without giving them any kind of, of COVID test uh, before they're entering the community. So what, what is being done? What could be done? Are you, are you suggesting they're letting people in across the border without testing them? Or to tell me a little bit more. They're being you're released. They're having to, because of the uh, executive order that the president signed earlier this week. Which, which executive? Which one? Yeah, which one? COVID-infected illegal aliens released into the United States? Whatever. So there was all of that setup. You'd think it would be a segment about COVID-19. But no, all of a sudden, he switches like that. And we're talking about immigrants. It's a bait and switch. But it's important to understand why he had that really long and drawn out setup. Uh, so first of all, he basically argues that the government purports to take COVID-19 seriously. However, the rules that they're imposing on the pleb class, they're not actually taking very serious themselves. And he cites the example of uh, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, dining indoors without a mask. Now, that obviously is irresponsible. Even though he's the governor, he should be fined. It's morally reprehensible what he's doing. I think you should lead by example. This is objectively a bad thing to do during the pandemic. But notice that he makes a jump. He implies that because this one governor did something, all public officials must be doing the same thing. He conflates him with they, plural. So we're not just talking about one governor. We're talking about all of government, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institute of Health. Every single official must also be hypocritical because there is this example of one government official being hypocritical. Now, the question is, why did he bring up COVID-19 and the restrictions that are imposed on all of us if ultimately he's going to be talking about immigration? Well, he's trying to establish his credibility. He's trying to convey to the audience that he takes COVID-19 seriously, and he is very cognizant of the rules. They're very strict. So if the government is going to be strict when it comes to COVID-19, then it's weird that they seem to be violating their own principles on this issue of immigration. So he says, the Biden administration is releasing thousands of foreign nationals living here illegally into American neighborhoods without bothering to test them. Uh, people with high infection rates living in crowded conditions sent forth into the American population like COVID isn't real. COVID infected illegal aliens released into, into the United States. Whatever. It's not like there's a pandemic. These are direct quotes from him. The words that he's using, like it conjures up 
very specific images. We're releasing these immigrants infected with COVID into the wild. Like you're thinking of them as if they're animals, like we're releasing animals into, you know, the public. That's kind of the way that he describes immigrants. Um, but, but ask yourself this question. Does Tucker Carlson actually care about immigrants giving other Americans COVID-19? No. Because if he truly wanted to fight COVID-19, we know what the solution is. The solution, obviously, is for the government to pay people to stay home. With his gigantic platform, he could have had influence over the Trump administration if he actually pushed this, because Trump actually took what he said seriously. So if he genuinely cared about protecting people from COVID, he would have been advocating for that. But what is the solution? Well, you know, the implication is that maybe these immigrants shouldn't be released to the public, but really, he doesn't come up with a solution. Instead, he primed his audience to think about immigrants in a different way, to think, well, you know, since I don't think that they should be released into our communities because I'm taking COVID-19 seriously, maybe we should deport them. I mean, I'm against deportation usually, but he does make a good point. This is a pandemic. And the fact of the matter is that if they're deported now, traveling would put them at a greater risk to contract the virus. Whereas if they were released from the holding centers that they're at currently, well, they'd be subjected to the same state-based restrictions as everyone else. It's not like they're more likely to increase the spread of COVID-19. And he implies that population density will lead to a rise in cases. And, you know, he's probably right about that. So what he's trying to do is subtly suggest that you should make a decision, your health or their health. It's us versus them. He's trying to get people who are traditionally sympathetic towards immigrants to think about them in a new way. He's using COVID-19, rather weaponizing COVID-19, to gin up xenophobia. What he's doing here is strategically very, very influential. Because someone who traditionally doesn't fall for xenophobia or aren't afraid of immigrants, well, now he presented you a danger that immigrants pose in an entirely new light. Now, in actuality, immigrants, I mean, they're no more likely to give you COVID-19 than your neighbor or someone at the grocery store. But think about the way that he referred to them. He says, people with high infection rates living in crowded conditions like he's trying to dehumanize them make them seem like they're not like you and me they're different they live in crowded conditions they have larger families more likely to contract COVID-19 they pose a threat to you now he said this before in a number of ways right he's talked about how immigrants make America dirty and how they hate us but this is a new way to utilize uh, something against immigrants, the pandemic. It is really, really nefarious. But this is one of the more clever examples of Tucker Carlson doing propaganda. As of late, he's become a lot more brazen about just straight-up lying. For example, this is what he said about George Floyd just the other day. Beginning of Memorial Day, BLM and their sponsors in corporate America completely changed this country. They changed this country more in five months than it had changed in the previous 50 years. How'd they do that? They used the sad death of a man called George Floyd to upend our society. Months later, we learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death was an utter lie. 
There was no physical evidence that George Floyd was murdered by a cop. The autopsy showed that George Floyd almost certainly died of a drug overdose, fentanyl. But by that point, facts didn't matter. It was too late. He's lying to you. He's telling you that the video you watched where the officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes, that actually didn't cause him to die, even though we literally watched him pass away. It was George Floyd's own fault. It was a drug overdose. Straight up lying. So think about the tactics that Tucker Carlson uses to make a point. Gaslighting. Priming. The way that he delivers the news to his audience is incredibly persuasive. And this is part of the reason why he is so popular. Because people might get the false sense that he's on their side. You know, he lambasts oligarchs and elites and claims to be anti-establishment. But this individual is a trust fund baby. He is the oligarch that he denounces. He is the establishment, at least when it comes to corporate media, that he claims to despise. But yet, because of the way that he uses language, he can convince people that he's actually on their side. So when he sells them xenophobia and racism and white supremacy, even explicitly, they take him seriously because he's cultivated that trust with his audience. But make no mistake about it, this man is absolutely dangerous. The propaganda that he disseminates could kill people. And I'm not just saying that because he gins up hatred against immigrants and people of color and marginalized communities. But now he's trying to convince his audience, mostly elderly viewers, that maybe the COVID vaccine isn't a good thing to have. I mean, he's not saying that explicitly, but he got you to think that that's the case by priming you to believe that maybe it's a little bit suspicious that all of these elites want us to take this vaccine. It's dangerous. And if we don't know what to look for, if we're not aware of what he's doing, then uh, we can't educate people and help them protect themselves against this level of propaganda, which is highly effective. In a recent episode of his podcast, Joe Rogan talked about the COVID-19 vaccine. I know, brace yourself, right? And what he says, like the reasoning that he gives for him personally not wanting to get vaccinated is... Uh, to be frank, pretty bizarre, pretty weird. Take a look. You taking that vaccine? No. Yeah. No, I, I just, I mean, I would if I felt like I needed it. But I just, I just feel like if you maintain your health, and I think for some people it's important. Are, I think for some people it's good. Are they going to make people take it in order to go overseas? I'm worried about that. I don't like that. I don't like needles. That's, I like, I don't like. Well, I don't, also, I want to know how this how people fare over x amount of months like what happens in six months after the vaccine when how long does it last for do you need it again next year that's a big yikes big yikes so we'll start with the positives um i have given joe rogan credit in the past because when he said something incorrect or harmful he has corrected the record that's good. I applaud him for doing that. And also, I will you know, note that he didn't explicitly say that the vaccine is unsafe. However, what he said here is harmful. Because you're not just talking to like one or two people in your studio. You're talking while millions of people watch you. So if you say, I don't think I want to take the vaccine for reasons X, Y, and Z, they might think, oh, well, Joe Rogan doesn't want to get the vaccine, so maybe I won't as well because his reasoning appeals to me. And 
if that actually happens, if you influence a good number of people, that could subject them to getting infected and dying potentially. I don't think that he wants that on his conscience. Like, I genuinely believe he doesn't want to do that, which is why I ask him to correct the record here because what he said is harmful and not just harmful, but nonsensical. So he says that he would personally get the vaccine, quote, if I felt I needed it. Look, I'm no epidemiologist. I'm not an expert here. I'm willing to admit that. But uh, Joe Rogan needs the vaccine because just two days after he posted this photograph of him with a bunch of his rich, maskless celebrity friends, Dave Chappelle tested positive for COVID-19. Now, I don't know who gave Dave Chappelle COVID-19. Was it Joe Rogan? Was it someone else in that room? Was it Elon Musk? I don't know. But what I do know is that if you do things like this, if you behave irresponsibly during a pandemic and attend a dinner party with friends while nobody is wearing masks, then you do need to get vaccinated. Sorry. It doesn't just affect you. It affects other people. Now, I'll admit that we don't necessarily know yet if you can still transmit the virus to someone else if you're vaccinated. I don't know. Perhaps if you get droplets with COVID-19 on your hand and you touch someone's face. I, I mean, I'm not sure. We're, we're still trying to figure that out. And when I say we, I mean the experts and I'm listening to see what they say. But still, if you behave in this way, you need to get vaccinated. You are one of the prime people that should be vaccinated. And he implied, well, I don't like that they're going to possibly mandate people getting vaccinated if they want to travel internationally. Why not? Do you think it's reasonable to uh, spread your germs and potentially COVID-19 to other countries that get it under control and vice versa? I mean, I think that's a reasonable expectation that if you're going to travel, you are required to do it safely. Now, when he said this, it genuinely made me scratch my head. He said, I just feel like if you maintain your health, then you don't need it. For some people, it's important. I think for some people, it's good. All right, I'm glad that you said that. You know, he's obviously uh, talking to the elderly and the immunocompromised, but that's not the way that it works. Like, coronavirus doesn't just think, oh, well, you know, this dude eats really healthy, he's physically fit, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna infect the next guy. That isn't the way that it works. You can still very much get infected with COVID-19 if you are healthy. And I feel like an adult should know this. Like Joe Rogan, he says stupid things very frequently, but I don't think he's a dumb guy. Like I think there is a level of intelligence that I would expect. And I just kind of wonder like, why, why is he skeptical? What's the point of the skepticism? Even if you feel like you didn't need it, what's the harm? It's safe. There's been trials with thousands of participants. Now millions of people in the United States have been vaccinated. So what's the reluctance? I mean, this is someone who has talked about how he's taken DMT and drugs on his podcast, and I've enjoyed those shows a lot. So if you would like, I'm assuming, buy DMT from someone in a parking lot, some shady dude, why is the vaccine more scary to you? Like, I, I just, I don't get this line of thinking. I don't get it. Like everything that we do, there is a risk, right? There's a risk in everything that we do. But the risk with the vaccine is very low. So you get the vaccine. Maybe your arm hurts for a day. Maybe you feel fatigued. Not all people. But then afterwards, you're immune, 95%. So I just, I guess this is just unnecessary. And that's what bothers me. Like you don't have to say this. You can add a caveat. Look, I don't think I'm going to get it. 
but I think everyone else should get it. Something like that, like some qualifier. So you don't put this out into the world, this idea that like we shouldn't be vaccinated because right now, you know, trying to build trust with the community who are rightfully skeptical of big pharma and government, that's really important. We need people to take this vaccine because we need to stop this pandemic. We need to save lives. So I think that like putting this out into the world, it's counterproductive. It hurts folks and it influences your own audience to do the wrong thing potentially, not take action needed to protect themselves. And I don't think that Joe Rogan wants his own viewers to be hurt by the rhetoric that he uses or the things that he says. So I hope that he corrects the record here and tries to do better. Like, obviously, if you maintain health, that doesn't make you immune from COVID-19. Obviously. So get the fucking vaccine and take it seriously until you do. Wear masks. Don't go to dinner with other maskless rich people. It's not that hard. Founder of Current Affairs magazine, Nathan J. Robinson, recently put out a tweet where he was joking about the U.S. government's aid to Israel. And he wrote, Did you know that the U.S. Congress is not actually permitted to authorize any new spending unless a portion of it is directed toward buying weapons for Israel? It's the law. Or, if not actually the written law, then so ingrained in political custom as to functionally be indistinguishable from law. So, I think it's pretty obvious that he's making a joke, but joke or not, what he's saying here is pretty accurate. I think that it's valid for U.S. citizens to question the aid that they're giving to foreign governments. So if we can question whether or not we should be giving Saudi Arabia money and weapons that they use to commit genocide in Yemen, then of course we should be able to question the aid that we give to an apartheid regime that is suppressing Palestinians and brutalizing Palestinians, denying them human rights. However, even though Nathan J. Robinson is a columnist at uh, the magazine that he founded, he also writes for The Guardian. However, after putting out this tweet, he received a letter from the editor-in-chief of The Guardian saying this, Nathan, hi there. As you partly present yourself as a Guardian columnist, allow me to express my concern when you make an assertion such as this. No such law exists in which this is, as one might say, fake news, irrespective of the later tweet when you say that it is indistinguishable from law. It's not law. End of. Given the reckless talk over the past year and beyond of how mythical Jewish groups and alliances yield power over all forms of U.S. public life, I'm not clear how this is helpful to public discourse, and I am not sure why singling out financial aid to Israel in a tweet and devoid of any context and without mention of aid to other countries either, currently or historically, is a useful addition to public discourse. You are free, of course, to use Twitter in whatever way you choose, but it dismays me that someone who presents themselves as a Guardian columnist would make such a clearly erroneous statement without, as I note, any context or justification. Now, Nathan responded by apologizing and it seemed as if everything was okay, some time passed, and then uh, Nathan learned that he was fired. He was literally fired because he put out a tweet where he criticized the Israeli government. Now, I do think it is important for us to combat anti-Semitic tropes, right? The Jewish cabal trope is extremely harmful, and it does increase anti-Semitism. But what Nathan is doing here is he is critiquing the Israeli government. Critiquing a group of people is not the same thing as critiquing a government. It is completely legitimate for us to call into question the actions of government because 
if we can't do that, then they can get away with anything. Imagine if it was racist to criticize an African country. Imagine if it were racist to criticize Saudi Arabia. You're Islamophobic. I mean, do you understand why this is problematic and nonsensical? So this is very clearly a way to suppress criticism of Israel. That's all it is. And Nathan J. Robinson wrote about this because this actually is a real issue of censorship. And it's not just Nathan J. Robinson who's the victim of this censorship. Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN in 2018 for criticizing the Israeli government and standing up for Palestinian rights. He wrote, Yesterday, I gave a speech at the UN in which I critiqued Israel's policies and practices towards Palestinians. It's baffling how people are not responding to the critique, but instead responding to things I didn't actually say. And what he's referring to is the accusations lobbed against him that he's anti-Semitic. So in other words, what's happening is any and all criticisms of the Israeli government, its practices, its treatment of other citizens, that's conflated with anti-Semitism. And this is very clearly a brazen attempt to shut down criticism when it comes to uh, the Israeli government. Now, what's interesting is that all of the free speech warriors on the right, they never talk about this, ever. They'd rather use some superficial, you know, um, anecdote related to cancel culture of some leftist being too politically correct and trying to tone police someone rather than calling out a real threat to freedom of speech. And it's not a threat to freedom of speech in the sense that Nathan J. Robinson's First Amendment right was violated. However, he's going to write about how this is bigger than just The Guardian. Now it's enshrined in laws across the country where you cannot criticize Israel and people are losing their jobs because of it. This happened with a school teacher in Texas not too long ago. Now in a column about this, Nathan J. Robinson writes, It is widely recognized that critics of Israel, no matter how well founded the criticism, are routinely punished by both public and private institutions for their speech. The American Civil Liberties Union has documented a pattern by which those who seek to protest, boycott, or otherwise criticize the Israeli government are being silenced, a trend that manifests on college campuses, in state contracts, and even in bills to change federal criminal law and suppresses the speech of people on only one side of the Israel-Palestine debate. The Center for Constitutional Rights has shown that Israel advocacy organizations, universities, government actors, and other institutions have targeted pro-Palestinian activists with a number of tactics, including event cancellations, baseless legal complaints, administrative disciplinary actions, firings, and false and inflammatory accusations of terrorism and anti-Semitism and concludes that there is a Palestine exception to free speech. The effort to keep critics of Israel quiet sometimes takes the form of explicit government action. There is an open campaign to criminalize speech critical of Israel, and some states even require oaths from government employees promising to not boycott Israel. But as Israeli journalist Gideon Levy notes in the Middle East Eye, it often comes in the form of baseless and offensive accusations that criticisms of Israel are definitionally anti-Semitic. In the United States, academic critics of Israel have had job offers rescinded or been otherwise kept from teaching, and CNN fired academic Mark Lamont Hill over his call for a free Palestine. In Britain, there has been a years-long absurd campaign to tar former labor leader and critic of the Israeli government policy, Jeremy Corbyn, as an anti-Semite. Human Rights Watch notes that the United States government has wielded unfounded accusations of anti-Semitism against it and against other human rights groups like Amnesty and Oxfam that have 
exposed Israel's shoddy human rights record. Within Israel itself, the free speech rights of Palestinians are brutally suppressed, and even Jews supportive of Palestinian rights are regularly harassed by the state. Abir al-Nahar of Open Democracy wrote last year about how major mainstream news media outlets are sensitized against any reference to Palestinian rights or international law and any criticism of Israel or its policies. I have noticed that a lot of people who are ostensibly pro-free speech have little to say when critics of Israel are met with professional consequences. Still, my case is a relatively trivial one, and focus should remain on the Palestinians who have been massacred and maimed by Israeli military aggression. The lives of these Palestinians mean absolutely nothing to those who voice more outrage over my tweet than over the actual uses of weapon systems we are buying Israel. The real problem with censoring critics of Israel is that it makes it easier for that country's government to keep murdering protesters and maintaining a blockade that the United Nations says denies basic human rights in contravention of international law and amounts to collective punishment. In 2018, hundreds of Palestinians, including children and medics, were shot by Israeli snipers at the Great March of Return protests. According to the Middle East Monitor, on just one day, the 14th of May, the Israeli army shot and killed seven children and over 1,000 demonstrators were shot with live ammunition. But Israel has never been held to account and the United States continued to supply it with arms. So everything that Nathan J. Robinson says here is 100% correct. And he goes a little bit deeper. He explains how our government is giving Israel more aid than other countries and why this really is a serious issue, why it is valid to question what our government does in response to regimes that are doing harm to others. Like, it shouldn't be controversial to criticize the actions of a government. If I criticized the American government and at any time I brought up something I don't like, I'm deemed anti-American, doesn't that just shut down dissent? Isn't that a very obvious attempt to silence my criticism? It's just, it, this is obvious, right? This is obvious. This is the political correctness. This is the censorship. This is the cancel culture that uh, Republicans have been warning everyone about, except they don't talk about things like this. Real issues related to censorship. They'd rather focus on superficial issues where somebody in the HuffPost wrote a column about how like you shouldn't do your hair a certain way or somebody said something bad a couple of years ago. Like this is the issue that serious people who care about free speech are going to actually look into. They're going to advocate for people like Mark Lamont Hill and Nathan J. Robinson and teachers who have lost their jobs. But they never do that because these people are frauds. So to all of the Dave Rubens of the world, the Steven Crowders of the world, the Ben Shapiros of the world, the Tim Pools of the world, ask yourself this. Why is it that they never talk about this issue? They seem ostensibly concerned with freedom of speech, issues related to censorship and the First Amendment, but they only seem to care as it pertains to them. So if they were demonetized or one of their friends was banned from Twitter, that is something that we should all care about. But an actual issue that threatens freedom of speech in the United States, something that has led to censorship and firings, what I'm told is cancel culture, why don't they talk about this? Why aren't they addressing this? It's almost like they don't actually care and they only bring up issues related to censorship when it's convenient for them. This is a serious issue. This is the hill that leftists should die on if we're genuinely concerned 
about freedom of speech. Because nine times out of ten, it is not Republicans who are the victims of freedom of speech, contrary to what folks like Ted Cruz or Diamond and Silk will say. It's actually leftists. It is actually leftists. And I think that the fact that conservatives have basically monopolized discourse with regard to censorship and freedom of speech, that's a failure on our part as leftists. So we need to use examples like this and call out the folks who purport to support freedom of speech and be against censorship. Make them talk about this. Ask them why they're not talking about this. And if they don't want to talk about this, then uh, that tells you that they're not consistent and that they're frauds. Last November, the people of South Dakota voted to legalize recreational marijuana, and it was set to go into effect this summer. However, a judge appointed by the state's governor, who was a Trump sycophant, by the way, has decided to unilaterally overturn the will of the people. And her reasoning is bullshit. So as Reed Wilson of The Hill reports, a South Dakota judge ruled Monday that a voter-approved constitutional amendment that would have legalized marijuana for recreational use was in itself unconstitutional, setting up a legal fight that pits Governor Christy Nome against her own constituents. Circuit Court Judge Christina Klinger, a Nome appointee in Pierre, ruled that Amendment A violated a rule that ballot measures cover only a single subject and that it does not conform to rules governing the way the state constitution is amended. South Dakota voters approved Amendment A, which legalized recreational marijuana by a 54% to 46% margin in November. A separate ballot measure legalizing marijuana for medicinal purposes passed with almost 70% support. South Dakotans for Better Marijuana Laws, the group that backed the amendment, pledged to appeal Monday's court ruling. We disagree with the ruling and we are preparing our appeal to the South Dakota Supreme Court, the group said in a statement. State Attorney General Jason Raffensborg's office, which is responsible for defending state laws, said to Tuesday, it is still reviewing the judge's decision. Raffensborg's attorneys had moved to throw the challenge out earlier this year. Noam, a first-term Republican governor who allied herself closely with former President Trump, has been unusually focused on opposing the amendment, both during the campaign and after voters gave the measure their approval. The lawsuit challenging the amendment's validity was brought by the head of the state highway patrol, who sued at Noam's request, and the sheriff of Pennington County. Were Amendment A to take effect in July, South Dakota would be the 15th state to legalize marijuana for recreational use and the 13th state in which voters themselves approved a ballot measure to make marijuana legal. So for whatever reason, this imbecile decided to sabotage a law that her own constituents passed. Does she want to be a one-term governor? It's not like this was close. Like this passed pretty solidly. I just don't understand why you would very explicitly go against the will of the people. Like, they clearly want this, and you lost. You made the case against this. It was nonsensical. They saw through it, and they voted to legalize recreational marijuana. But you just, you couldn't take it. You couldn't handle them not doing what you wanted. So you chose to attempt to challenge democracy. I mean, why do Republicans hate democracy? And furthermore, if you're a Republican... Isn't your entire philosophy small government? How is this small government? Aren't you supposed to be pro-capitalist? Having a flourishing marijuana industry in your state, isn't that pretty pro-capitalist? Isn't that the free market? Like, I just don't get it. These folks are hypocrites by their own standards, but no reasonable person should be against the legalization of marijuana for recreational uses. 
Because guess what? It's been done before in other states and it's a success everywhere. In my state, I literally can walk into a store and purchase pod. It's simple. Everyone loves it. And there was a lot of fear-mongering at first, particularly like during the campaign days when it was on the ballot. But now people who were naysayers support it. Older people have tried it who were previously against it because it was stigmatized. But legalizing it, not only does it get rid of the stigma, but it gives people access to it who didn't previously have access to it, who have found that it helps them to sleep better or, you know, decrease anxiety or hell, God forbid, lets them have a little bit of fun. Like, this is a very, very stupid thing to be against. It's bad politics and it's bad policy. But the governor of South Dakota decided to spit in the eyes of her own citizens. What an idiot. What an idiot. I will never understand politicians who are against this. Never. Because it's an easy political win. You can score points on the left and also the right. There are many conservatives who want marijuana to be legalized because a lot of people like smoking pot. So why not just like take the L? It's it's just genuinely baffling to me how anyone in 2021 can be against grown adults using pot. Insane. So I hope that the group who is appealing this is successful because this cannot stand. I mean, this is very clearly like it's bogus. They're trying to shoot this down on a technicality. But you're just trying to overturn the will of the people. So do you or do you not hate democracy? It's not like they're voting on anything that is going to harm the public or harm a particular group of people. They're voting on a civil liberties issue that's been decided in states that's not even controversial in some states. So I just don't get why you go out of your way to get on the losing side of this argument. Like history is going to look back at you very unkindly and see you as an obstacle to progress. Progress that everyone agreed on, basically. I mean, it's not like 100% of the country supports pot legalization, obviously, but when you have a majority of Americans agree on anything, maybe shut the fuck up. Sit down. Let them have this one. The most common response, or criticism rather, that I've heard of the defund the police slogan is that it sounds like people who say they want to defund the police really just want to get rid of police. It sounds like they don't want anyone to show up to my house when I call 911. So, like, what do we do in that instance? Are you just hiding your abolitionist agenda behind a catchy slogan? And in actuality, that's not really the case. Defund the police really is more about reallocating resources into other areas in society. Because in cities across the country, police department budgets are much, much more bloated uh, than anywhere else. So basically, what folks who advocate for defunding the police want is more money in healthcare, education, housing. That's really all that it's about. And it's important because, you know, up until this point, we've always just accepted that for every single public health issue in America, there's a one-size-fits-all solution. It's policing, right? So rather than trying to tackle this issue of homelessness with Housing, we just criminalize homelessness. Rather than responding to drug abuse and addiction with uh, treatment, we respond by criminalizing drugs. So people are calling for a new approach to drastically rethink policing in America. And some cities are starting to do that. 
Denver, for example, rolled out their program known as STAR, which stands for Support Team Assistance Response. And the preliminary results are very, very encouraging. So as Grace Hawk of USA Today reports, another U.S. city is reporting early success with a program that replaces traditional law enforcement responders with healthcare workers for some emergency calls. Previously, Denver 911 operators only directed calls to police or fire department first responders, but the Support Team Assistance Response Star Pilot Program created a third track for directing emergency calls to a two-person team, a medic and a clinician, staffed in a van from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on weekdays. The Star Program which launched in June, reported promising results in its six-month progress report. The program aims to provide a person-centric mobile crisis response to community members who are experiencing problems related to mental health, depression, poverty, homelessness, or substance abuse issues. Denver is among several U.S. cities working to develop an alternative emergency responder model for people who are experiencing mental health crises, as police officers fatally shoot hundreds of people experiencing mental health crises every year, according to a Washington Post database of fatal shootings by on-duty police officers. Since 2015, police have fatally shot nearly 1,400 people with mental illnesses, according to the database. Over the first six months of the pilot, Denver received more than 2,500 emergency calls that fell into the STAR program's purview, and the STAR team was able to respond to 748 calls. No calls required the assistance of police, and no one was arrested. Denver police responded to nearly 95,000 incidents over the same period, suggesting that an expanded STAR program could reduce police calls by nearly 3% according to the report. Data collected during the pilot program found that star calls were focused in certain areas of the city, and most were calls for trespassing and welfare checks. Approximately 68% of people contacted were experiencing homelessness, and there were mental health concerns in 61% of cases, largely schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, and major depressive disorder, with 33% of people having co-occurring conditions according to the report. So keep in mind that these are just preliminary results, but this is incredibly encouraging. Very, very uh, encouraging. Look, folks who claim to support the police, I don't know why you'd be against this. Because don't you want police officers to have more time to deal with real issues? Like, if they're not responding to mental health issues, then this frees them up to deal with actual crime. But for the folks who don't think police are suited to respond to issues related to mental health or homelessness, this gives them what they want as well. Like, I feel like this is something that appeases both sides. Not to both sides it, but this this is what we all should want and strive for. Now, perhaps it just needs to be done, because once people see an example of this working, then perhaps they'll get on board with it. And we might see a sort of domino effect. I mean, people are usually skeptical until they see something in action, until they have concrete evidence that suggests this is a good policy. I mean, look at uh, cannabis legalization. All of a sudden, you see two states legalize it, Colorado and Washington, and now we have almost 15 states with legal recreational cannabis. All it takes is one good example to get the ball rolling. And again, to go back to defund the police, I usually don't like to use memes to educate people or demonstrate my point, but this meme really just does such a great job at explaining what folks who want to defund the police want. Like, if you reallocate the money being used to fund an already bloated police budgets to other areas of society, then imagine everything that we could accomplish. We could fund education, healthcare, youth services, housing, other community investments. And if you decrease the need for police, then overall the aggregate effect 
will be that there is less police brutality because they're interacting with less people and individuals who are experts who are social workers who are trained to deal with people with specific needs drug abuse mental health issues that's that's obviously going to improve the state's response to folks with these very special needs so this is win-win-win and really what we just need is for more cities to do this and thankfully since it's at the city level this is something that folks can easily get involved with and make a huge difference like you don't have to wait until congress is full of progressives to have this enacted like you can take action you can organize with people in your area and you can encourage your city council to adopt a program like this as well so look i just wanted to share this because this is uh Really fantastic news. Again, this is early and we need more evidence that this works, but so far what we're seeing is very positive, to say the least. Bernie Sanders and Neera Tandon faced off once again, perhaps for the final time. He was questioning her during her confirmation hearings, and thankfully he brought up things that she said, not just about him, but progressives in general that are just deeply disgusting and if joe biden is serious about trying to unite the country he shouldn't just be trying to unite democrats with republicans he should be trying to unite with progressives as well because like it or not we are a very large portion of the electorate so if you want true unity you can't spit in the eyes of progressives people who the democratic party needs and just expect us to forget about it so these things they have to be addressed they can't be swept under the rug and bernie sanders did bring this up and here is his questions uh the line of questioning that he gave to near tandon uh i'm really glad that he decided to uh speak on this i have a letter in front of me from as i'm sure you have seen a number of republican members of the house concerned about some of the things you said as uh, the head of CAP, but of course your attacks were not just made against Republicans, they were vicious attacks made against uh, progressives, uh, people who I have worked with, me personally. So as you um, come before this committee to assume a very important role in the United States government, uh, at a time when we need serious work on serious issues and not personal attacks on anybody, whether they're on the left or the right, can you reflect a little bit about some of your decisions and the personal statements that you have made in recent years? Yes, Senator, I really appreciate that question, and I recognize that my language and my uh, expressions on social media, you know, um, caused hurt to people, and I feel badly about that, and I really regret it, and I recognize this, it's really important for me to demonstrate that I can work with others, and I look forward to taking that burden, and I apologize to people on either the left or right who are hurt by what I've said. Okay. And as you know, it's not a question of being hurt. We're all big boys, and I don't see too many girls here, but big boys uh, who get attacked all the time. But it's important that we make the attacks expressing our differences on policy and that we don't need to make personal attacks no matter what view somebody may hold so can we assume that as the director of the omb we're going to see a different approach if you are uh, appointed than you have uh, taken at the cap absolutely and i would say you know social media does um lead to too many personal comments and my approach will be radically different I'm really, really thankful that he brought that up, but her answer was just, it was so fake, so disingenuous. Um, she's not sorry for anything. She doesn't regret anything. Like, she, like all of us, is a shit poster. The difference is that, like, 
in the events this were to come up for me or you, it would be a lot bigger deal. But because she has so much sway and influence in the Democratic Party, they're choosing to kind of just like dismiss all of her bad behavior online. Uh, and not just online, but her physically assaulting a journalist who was technically an employee of hers, outing one of her own staffers who was the victim of sexual harassment at CAP. It's just, it's really frustrating that they allow this to happen. Like, they, they pretend to be, you know, the individuals who take the high road. They say, well, when Republicans go low, we go high. But that's not true. Like, your actions don't indicate that that's actually the case. So it's it's deeply frustrating. And even Nina Turner spoke up and said she has viciously attacked the progressive movement. She has also lied and attacked me, too. So it's like every single person who did not unequivocally and loyally support Hillary Clinton or whoever the Democratic Party establishment was like trying to shove down our throats, near Tandon attacked them. Everyone is the victim of her wrath. Um, and so all of this, uh, I'm sorry, backpedaling bullshit, like, uh, uh, who's buying this? And it's funny because we saw how disingenuous and fake she was there. But I want to play another clip with uh, Senator Kennedy. He's asking her a very basic question. And even though she was fake and disingenuous throughout the entire confirmation hearings, like, she couldn't answer the most simple question ever. I have to tell you, I'm very disturbed about your personal comments about people. Mm. Um, and it's not just one or two. I think you deleted about a thousand tweets. And it wasn't just about Republicans. And I don't mind disagreements in policy. I think that's great. I love the dialectic. But the comments were personal. Mm. I mean... You call Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant slut. That is not. That is not true. And when, when you when you said these things, did you mean them? I would have said ignorant. <laughs> Senator, I have to say, I deeply regret my comments. I understand that, but and when I you said them, did you them. mean them? I understand you've you, you've taken them back, but did you mean them? I'd say. The discourse over the last four years on all sides has been incredibly polarizing. I'm asking about yours. Did you mean them? I really feel badly about them, Senator. Did you mean them? I feel badly about them. Did you mean them when you said them? I mean, I would say social media is a is is I've Did you mean them when discourse. you said them? I feel terribly about them. Did you mean them when you said them or were you not telling the truth? I I, I mean, I feel badly. I look back at them. I'm, I said them. I feel badly about them. I deleted tweets over Are you saying that because you want to be confirmed? No, I felt badly about okay. them. And Did you mean them. them when you said them? Senator, I, I must have meant them, but I really regret them. I want the record to reflect that I did not call Senator Sanders an ignorant slut. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I don't know how I should take that, Senator Kennedy, but uh, Senator Kane. First of all, that was just a weird clip, and I'm assuming that Kennedy just watched uh, this scene from The Office. Try it, you ignorant slut! Second of all, she has lied so much, I don't understand why she couldn't just say, uh, no, I didn't mean 
all of those mean things that I said. It was, you know, the heat of the moment, and I was battling with folks online. It was Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, and then Bernie Sanders versus Kamala and Pete Buttigieg, and I felt defensive, and, you know, I didn't like Bernie Sanders, so I said some really horrible things that uh, I didn't actually mean. Like, you could have just said something like that. You're already lying and faking it. So why can't you just answer that question? Like, I don't think she realizes how ridiculous it looks. Now, perhaps she was anticipating that he was going to, like, follow up if she says she didn't mean it with something else. Like, why did you say it? I don't know, some gotcha. But still, I mean, you are so fake. I don't understand how you don't just, like, answer a simple question. Like, this isn't rocket science. He's just asking you, did you mean the things that you say? And it's kind of a stupid question to begin with. But, I mean, just give him a fucking answer. So, look, I think that more than enough uh, has been demonstrated over the past week. Uh, that just proves she is not capable of leading an agency. She's incapable of working with others. Like, look at the way that she led CAP. If you literally dox sexual harassment survivors or punch members of uh, your staff, technically, she punched Faz Shakir, Bernie's campaign uh, manager in 2020, when he was working for Think Progress, which is part of CAP. Like, if you do things like that, you should never get a job in government again. But the Democratic Party establishment loves her. Now, all of these issues that were brought up about her personality, it is far less important than what I think is addressed here, and that is the corruption at CAP. All right, let me get to another issue that concerns me very much. I happen to believe that big money interests have an undue influence over the economic and political life of our country. That uh, too often, uh, campaign contributions are what determines policy rather than the needs of ordinary Americans. And according to the Washington Post, since 2014, the Center for American Progress has received roughly $5.5 million from Walmart, uh, a company that pays its workers starvation wages, $900,000 from the Bank of America, $550,000 from J.P. Morgan Chase, $550,000 from Amazon, $200,000 from Wells Fargo, $800,000 from Facebook, and up to $1.4 million from Google. In other words, CAP has received money for some of the most powerful special interests in our country. Uh, how will your relationship with those very powerful special interests uh, impact your decision-making if you are uh, appointed to be the head of OMB? Senator, I thank you for that question. It will have zero impact uh, on my uh, on my decision making. I'm actually uh, captured a number of positions that disagreed vigorously uh, with the policy positions of those institutions. But I appreciate this question, and uh, and it is my role. It will be my role to ensure that I'm only serving the interests of the American people, the administration, and its agenda to address rising inequality, and address the needs of working families. Oh, I can assure you that all of this money that I took from large multinational corporations is going to have zero impact on the way that I act as director of the OMB. So I'm like literally the one human being on the planet who is not influenced when entities and individuals do good things for me and are kind to me. That doesn't have any impact on my behavior whatsoever. I'm immune to it. Who believes this? Who buys this? I know Bernie Sanders doesn't believe it. And anyone who thinks money in politics is an issue shouldn't believe it. Because 
you wouldn't be concerned with money and politics in general if you weren't actually cognizant of the influence that it has over lawmakers and people in influential positions, such as the leader of CAP. So, I mean, we, we know exactly that Neera Tandon is terrible, and whoever else Biden would nominate wouldn't be great. But I think you can do better than Neera Tandon, Joe Biden. I think that there's someone else out there who's less divisive, less hateful towards members of your own party, someone who just is actually capable of working with others, like an adult. So why, why are you nominating her? It's just, it's really irritating to me that Democrats have these select figures like Rahm Emanuel, Neera Tandon, Tom Perez, and they just shuffle them around in different positions. And it's irritating. It's obnoxious. Like, you always complain about how, oh, well, young people don't come out and vote for us. Maybe it's because you completely shut out younger folks. You don't put them in positions of power. You don't want to actually hear their voices. I mean, if this is easy. So I hope that Bernie Sanders doesn't vote for Neera Tandon. If he does, I will be extremely disappointed. Um, I hope that his knowledge of money and politics and its corrupting influence is enough to persuade him to do the right thing. I don't want Bernie Sanders to just, like, go along to get along. Like, I'm glad he brought up these questions. But now, you know, put those words into action. Do the right thing. Vote against her. Now, I think this is probably all a foregone conclusion. She'll most likely be confirmed, uh, perhaps by the time you see this video. But nonetheless, uh, she should not be confirmed. Uh, she is a smear merchant for the Democratic Party establishment. And she absolutely is not qualified to hold a position of power. Not at that level. So the confirmation hearings for Neera Tandon have begun. And I tried to go online and wish my good friend Neera good luck, but unfortunately, she still has me blocked. Yeah, I thought that we were past this, Neera. I thought that we were cool. But apparently, um, she's not ready to squash the beef. This is why I don't like you. It's not because you wanted to steal Libya's oil. It's not because you wanted to cut Social Security. It's not because you literally physically assaulted a journalist who was technically an employee of yours. It's not because you added a victim of sexual harassment on your staff. It's because you blocked me on Twitter. I'm kidding, obviously. But I mean, there's a plethora of reasons why everyone, not just leftists, but centrists, should be against Neera Tandon. She is not a progressive, even though she ran an organization badly titled the Center for American Progress. She's a neoliberal. She is a warmonger. She is someone who Republicans can point to as an example of the swamp. They can say, look, Joe Biden appointed this individual who's a bad person, who took lots of money from special interests, and this is what we've been talking about. Like, you're giving Republicans ammunition to demonize you, even if they're guilty of the same thing, but you let them pretend to be the hero when they are standing up to people like Neera Tandon, and you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't give them ammunition, but that's exactly what happened. So, Democrats just love Neera Tandon, so no Democrat is actually going to challenge her, but Republicans are, thankfully, challenging her. Now, are the Republicans who fight against this nomination hypocrites? Yes. Are their politics actually comparable to Neera Tandon's, making their opposition to her seemingly nonsensical? Yes. But am I low-key hoping that they'll actually stop her from getting confirmed? Yes. Because even if Republicans are bad-faith actors, still, if the end result amounts to something that's good, that is, being someone better to direct the OMB, then I think that's that's something that uh, we should hope for. 
um, except the person who chose to stand up to Neera Tandon and ask her the correct questions is like the worst person imaginable who's very obviously just trying to rehabilitate his own career. I'm talking about Josh Hawley, who questioned her on her corruption, and it's ironic that he, of all people, is choosing to take this stand considering he took hundreds of thousands of dollars literally from PACs. So, I mean, I just find it funny that he's going to be the one that feigns outrage at corruption in DC. I mean, this is the same guy who literally incited a violent insurrection a month ago, who should resign in shame, but nonetheless, two things can be true at once. You know, simultaneously, we can believe that Neera Tandon is not qualified for this position and she should not get this job, and also that Josh Hawley is an opportunist who's just using this to bolster his own populist cred. Now, we'll kind of go over why what he says here and his, his framing is incredibly disingenuous, but nonetheless, Neera Tandon needs to be asked the question that Josh Hawley asked her. And since Democrats won't actually hold her or anyone in the Biden administration accountable, you know, we, we need to hear her response to this. So uh, we'll watch his question to her. And then uh, when we come back, I will proceed to shit on both of them for being terrible people. This question relates to your broad view, I think, of, uh, of the economy and society. Let me just ask you, do you think that Wall Street and big tech companies have too much influence in our economy and society today? Yes. I also, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I agree with you. And I've talked for years now about these concentrations of power, how they stifle competition, hurt small business, and ultimately hurt working people. I want to ask you about uh, a report uh, from the New York Times and other outlets suggesting that you solicited tens of millions of dollars in donations from Wall Street and Silicon Valley companies as president of the Center for American Progress, including very large contributions from Mark Zuckerberg. I understand that in early 2019, Senator Sanders actually wrote to your organization suggesting that these corporate interests may be inappropriately influencing your work. Can you just give us a sense of how you will, if you're confirmed as OMB director, how you will advocate for working people, given this history of soliciting tens of millions of dollars from the biggest and most powerful corporations on the planet? Senator, the role of OMB is to serve the public, and I am 100% committed to that role. And let me say that, uh, just to be clear, uh, I believe that the Center for American Progress took funding from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, not Mark Zuckerberg directly, but I completely take the point about uh, uh, concerns about funding. And I can commit to you that uh, I will always uphold the highest ethical standards. I will work with career folks at OMB to make sure I do so, but I will also say that uh, no policy or position I have taken has been determined by the financial interests of any single person. $665,000, I think, from the personal foundation of Mr. Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. Uh, millions of dollars from Wall Street financiers, big banks, foreign governments, Silicon Valley, a million dollars from the managing partner at Bain Capital, two and a half million dollars from the UAE. That was between 2016 and 2018. Given this record, uh, how can you assure us that you'll work to see that these Silicon Valley and Wall Street firms don't exercise undue influence frankly, influence that they've already got in the making of government policy and the control of our economy. I mean, what? how can you assure us that you're going to be an independent actor when you've been so close to them to have raised so much money over all these years? I, I really appreciate that question. And I would say, 
Um, I and the Center for American Progress aggressively took, takes on the positions, take on the um, role of Facebook and tech companies, uh, have called for higher taxes and companies, regulations of Wall Street, uh, uh, financial transaction tax. I'm proud of the record of the Center for American Progress and policies that will limit the power of Wall Street, limit the power of tech companies. I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you and work with you on those ideas because I do agree with you that, uh, that uh, corporate special interests have too much power in our discourse. And so whether it's a financial transaction tax or other proposals, obviously I take on my role as OMB director would be one in which I follow the uh, follow the tax policy of the president, but it is my orientation that we sh we need to rebalance power in our economy, and I hope there are ways you and I can work together in those arenas. It's really frustrating to watch that because Joe Biden gave someone like Josh Hawley an opportunity to go in front of cameras and pretend to be a hero, when in actuality, this dude is a fucking fraud. He's talking about near attendance corruption. Meanwhile, he's taken, what, over a million dollars worth of PAC contributions himself, I don't think that he actually is concerned about money in politics. If he was, he wouldn't be a capitalist. If he was actually a populist who cared about the working class, he wouldn't be a conservative. He asked her, how will you, if you're confirmed as OMB director, how will you advocate for working people, given this history of soliciting tens of millions of dollars from the biggest and most powerful corporations on the planet? I mean, we should be asking you the same question as well. He also said, uh, concentrations of power hurt working people. Yeah, that's capitalism, numbnuts. Are you going to become a socialist? No, because you're a fraud. There's no such thing as a right-wing populist, because to be right-wing, that's inherently against popular policies that Americans want, because by and large, even if Americans self-identify as conservatives, regardless of the label that they apply to themselves, they agree with progressive policies, so you're not a populist. Uh, having said that, though, near attendance answer to a very good question posed by a very bad person was horseshit. Like, she couldn't really answer the question. She had no persuasive way of explaining to us that it's really going to be working people that she's looking out for. I mean, do you see why it's really bad that Democrats continue to prop up corrupt individuals like Janet Yellen, Neera Tandon, Anthony Blinken? When you do this, you give Republicans an argument against you that's also going to persuade normal people who get duped by these pseudo-populists on the right. Now Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley get to parade around as if they're, you know, the champions of working people and condemn Neera Tandon and call out her corruption. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, they're as corrupt as Neera Tandon and arguably more nefarious than her, more hawkish than her in actuality. Me. But the point in showing you this clip is not to rehabilitate Josh Hawley's image or character. We should not let him get away with the destruction that he caused on January 6th. We should not let him pretend to care about corruption while he is swimming in money from special interests as a self-identified capitalist. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that Neera Tandon is an objectively hawkish pro-corporate individual and the question is why continue to reward people who make the democratic party look bad why if you actually care about defeating republicans it's a question that i want to see someone ask joe biden but nobody is going to question near tandon and her motives because you know she is a democrat 
Even a lot of progressive Democrats will like vociferously defend Neera Tanden when this individual is part of the reason why, you know, politics in America is, is so corrupted. You know, this is the leader of an organization that acted as one of many vehicles to launder the influence of special interests and elites in America. So, you know, they shouldn't be rewarded after doing things that are contrary to what the American people want. Like, this is an individual who advocated for cuts to Social Security, and Joe Biden claimed that, you know, people on the left were wrong to criticize him for previously stating that he wanted to cut Social Security. But now he appoints someone who was very openly just a couple of years ago talking about the need to cut Social Security and other entitlements. It's just, it's a joke. It is an absolute joke. How about this? No more near attendants. No more Josh Hollies. Let's actually put people in positions of power who care. Who don't just say the right things when it's convenient, when there are cameras on them, when the spotlight's on them, but actually do the right things. Can we just agree on that? No? What's that? She's probably going to get confirmed? Yeah, yeah. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. But um, nonetheless still very disappointing. Supposedly serious news outlet Fox News is really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of like trying to find examples to point to that illustrate their point that the left is bad. This one is a bit of a reach. Um, we have to talk about this because it is just over the top to the point where it is indistinguishable from satire or parody. Uh, nonetheless, let me give you some context before I show you the Fox News clip. So, Quillette journalist Jonathan Kay tweeted this out. So, it turns out I've been using dog shampoo in my hair for the last few months. <laughs> I only discovered it. <laughs> I only discovered it when I ran out and needed to get more. This is partly my own fault, but it doesn't help that Arm and Hammer has the word pets in like four point typeface. I'm guessing this is common. <laughs> and I love that it gave way to this headline. Journalist mocked for using dog shampoo. <laughs> American politics is so stupid, so irredeemable. And the fact that I'm talking about that, this makes me part of the problem. Nonetheless, um, I don't know how you can accidentally use dog shampoo <laughs> when there's... <laughs> There's literally a picture of a dog on the fucking bottle. <laughs> and look, I have two dogs. I've never made this mistake. I've never had a difficult time distinguishing between human shampoo and dog shampoo. But apparently he responded to this critique saying, But John, it has a pic of a dog. Doesn't mean anything. Lots of shampoos I use in the past have pictures of waterfalls or people cleaning dishes or gauzily drawn women frolicking in pastures or dudes under waterfalls with chests provocatively projected outwards or whatever. Okay, but still, it had a picture of a dog on it and it was like a really big picture of a dog. Like, we're not talking about one of those shampoo bottles that have like a picture of an apple because it smells like apple. Um... This was literally pet shampoo with a picture of a dog on it. To tweet about this, even if you're trying to be like intentionally self-deprecating, is really embarrassing. Nonetheless, a comedian and actor Seth Rogen decided to chime in 
And um, this is where things take a turn for the funny, because Seth Rogen responded saying, you're stupid. Kay then responded saying, trolled by Seth Rogen, achievement unlocked. Seth Rogen responded again by saying, I'm not trolling you. This was objectively stupid. I honestly have no clue who you are beyond this stupid tweet. Kay then responded saying, well, you celebrities seem like happy people. So you could tell at this point he's actually genuinely getting butt hurt. Seth then responded saying, for real though, what did you expect the reaction to be? Tons of people like, yeah, I also used dog shampoo by accident. Who doesn't? <laughs> that is too much. Kay then responded <laughs> saying, sorry for the delayed response. As I spent the day skating on a frozen pond with my kids. I don't know why you included that. Uh, but is this a serious question? My tweet was a self-deprecating knock at myself. Was using my dog shampoo by accident. <laughs> then expressed faux outrage at Arm and Hammer. Ha ha ha. I'm not a pro like you, so not every punchline lands. But was it not obvious that I was joking when I included the dishwasher reference? Even I know not to wash my hair with palm olive. You got 9 million followers. You're funny and smart, and I love your movies. But what you did here was just nasty. So I love this. Like, he's the embodiment of this meme. Like, the happy face. But behind the scenes he's really crying on the inside he's he's hurting he started off just like trying to be like oh i was just kidding everyone and then he like genuinely got upset because people were clowning on him but i mean again i don't know what you expected like i think that seth rogan's tweet put it best like did he honestly believe people were gonna be like oh well sure you know i used dog shampoo before like who does that <laughs> and then who tweets about it after doing something that stupid um, so, uh, Seth Rogen then proceeded to do a little bit of research on him and followed up saying, John, I've read more about you since we talked and I found using dog shampoo isn't even remotely the stupidest thing you've done. Your writing is terrible and you disguise your dumb ideas with a thesaurus vocabulary. You, again, are stupid. This article was particularly dumb. And he points to an article written by Jonathan Kay where he argues that the storming of the U.S. Capitol wasn't about white supremacy whatever Canadian pundits say. Okay. So now this is where, believe it or not, the story gets even weirder because uh, Fox News picked up the story and they talk about an angle that I missed where this journalist's mom jumped in and defended him against Seth Rogen. Not kidding. Jonathan Kay is a senior editor at the online magazine Quillette, which is always an interesting uh, read. Over the years, he's written big, meaty essays on all the big subjects. War, pestilence, social justice, gender dysphoria, Inuit whale hunting. And none of it went anywhere until the other day when he did a throwaway tweet revealing that for the last three months he'd accidentally been washing his hair with his dog's shampoo. And next thing you know, big-time Hollywood star Seth Rogen and small-time lefty hack Keith Olbermann and the rest of the blue checker were pounding on him. Jonathan Kay uh, joins us uh, tonight. Uh, Jonathan, as I think you put it in one of your tweets, uh, this, this escalated rather quickly. Yeah, <laughs> it was really strange. It, it was supposed to be this self-deprecating joke and, uh, you know, I I tweeted it and then I I don't know, I think I walked my dog and then I checked my phone. It was like, 
Seth Rogen was <laughs> calling me names. It, it was a very surreal way to spend my Sunday morning. And then uh, that thing that happens that you really don't want when you're in a Twitter spat with Seth Rogen is that your mum decided to chip up on chip in on your behalf and suggest that he work this into a subplot for his next movie. And you didn't appreciate that. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's not a good look uh, when family members jump in. Uh, but I was very disappointed in Seth. And by the way, I just, you know, at first... Uh, you know, my response to him was like, look, maybe this guy's going through a bad thing. He got into spats with with, with certainly people who are more famous than me, like Gad Saad and Rudolph Giuliani. And I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. I said, hey, look, I love your movies. You know, you know, maybe you're having a bad weekend or something like oh. that. And but at, like I kind of gave him the opportunity to say, hey, you know what? You're, I'm, I have nine million followers and here I am chasing down some random Toronto journalists, you're right, I'm, I'm being stupid. I'm the one being stupid, but he, he, never, he never got to that point. It was really, um, it was disappointing. I like Seth Rogen's movies. Well, I was disappointed. He, no, he seems no, like a nice no, guy when you look at him on screen. This is, no, no, this is unbecoming of you, because he went, he, he said, I thought you were the most stupid guy on the planet for the dog shampoo thing. And then he Googles you and he finds you were in, you, you didn't think the January 6th thing was a white supremacist insurrection. And then he starts beating up on you for that. So it's not just that you're a guy who wears dog shampoo, but then he discovers that you're a dog shampoo, racist, hater, white supremacist too. Don't, don't apologize and say nice things about Seth Rogen's lousy movies, Jonathan. Well, look, by the way, I just I, I tried to make it clear to him. I said, look, you're misunderstanding the title of the article you're referring to. I myself, Mark, you of all people know this. I myself can be a very sanctimonious leftist. And so I expected <laughs> that there would be some solidarity expressed between uh, urban Jewish sanctimonious leftists. But apparently there's none. And I uh, I'm, I'm actually more disappointed than angry. Really? Fuck off. <laughs> I'm actually more disappointed than angry. Whatever, dude. Conservatives are really, really fucking weird. And if it wasn't already embarrassing enough that his mom jumped in to defend him from Seth Rogen, who was making fun of him for using dog shampoo, he thought it was a good idea to literally go on Fox News to talk about this further. This man is an absolute sucker for punishment. This must be his fetish. And I'm not here to king shame anyone, but Jesus Christ, if you're not actually trying to embarrass yourself, then you've just, you've got to do better. I don't know what to say. Like, this is really fucking weird stuff. Like, conservatives are really going out of their way to paint the left, not that Seth Rogen is a good example of the left, but they're trying to paint the left as like overly aggressive and antagonistic and you can't even joke anymore without the leftists coming after you and attacking you and calling you a white supremacist. But like your entire article, your entire segment was undermined by the fact that you're just making yourself look fucking stupid by even talking about this. Like... Fox News, the number one news network in America, picked up a story about how a celebrity was mean to a conservative journalist because he used dog shampoo in his hair. Like, is this real life? 
Are we serious here? Now, a different reporter actually tweeted out an image with the segment because, of course, seeing the headline, adult journalist's mom defends him from Seth Rogen, that's just objectively hilarious. I don't care who you are. Seth Rogen actually saw it. And, you know, then Jonathan Kay, of course, tried to play it cool again. Uh, you could tell that he was really mad because he was responding to basically every single person in his mentions who was dunking on him. And it's just... I don't know what to say about this. I'm a little bit ashamed of myself for even talking about this uh, because this is that stupid of a story. But it's just like it really shows you that Fox News and the right, they will go to any length to play the victim, even if it's the dumbest instance imaginable. Like even if somebody who does something extremely fucking stupid and uses dog shampoo and then tweets about it, uh, you know, that is where they have to use that example, that conservatives are the victims. Don't you think that you can, like, find a different example? Isn't there some other, like, cancel culture story that you could be covering if you really wanted to demonize the left and have people take you seriously? Like, this this segment that we saw from Fox News was indistinguishable from a parody, and the dude who was the host sounds exactly like Kyle Kalinske's smug elitist character. Oh, well, I do declare, sir. Like, it sounds exactly like that so i don't know what to say um yeah a conservative journalist used dog shampoo in his hair and then tweeted about it and then people made fun of him and then he played the victim and fox news picked up the story and his mom defended him okay it's time to take a break from twitter 2020 was undeniably the year of the Karen because we saw far too many viral videos featuring Karens doing terrible things and being terrible people. We saw a number of racist Karens. We saw COVID Karens, otherwise known as COVID idiots. And I think the most notorious one that we all remember is QAnon Karen, who did this inside of a Target. Uh, Target? I'm not playing anymore about the This shit's fucking over. This shit's 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 over. Yay! This shit's over. Woo! Yay! Can everything else do it? Why can't do it? Cause I'm a blonde white woman. Fucking wear a fucking forty thousand dollar fucking Rolex. I don't have the fucking right to fix shit up. I'm fucking. Ah! Ah! Cheap. Ah! Ah! What are you gonna do, right? Take it off. That's what I'm gonna do. Take it off. That is still really difficult to watch, even though it's been almost a year, uh, because what we saw was just a really unwell, unhinged individual who was destroying property in a Target where minimum wage employees would be forced to clean all of that up. She was harassing other individuals who were wearing masks. It was just awful. But the reason why we're talking about this is because this individual, that same person who filmed herself destroying stuff in a Target, She's done a complete 180. She is a new person now, and she has left the QAnon cult. And she's speaking up, and she's trying to help others. It's genuinely a feel-good story. Like, this is good news, and I want to celebrate people who make a positive change for the better. And also, I think that her story can really be helpful and useful in educating others, helping them to leave the QAnon or conspiracy cult that they're currently in. There's a lot of folks in this country that we have to deprogram 
and uh, bring back to reality, quite frankly. And I think that sharing these examples is really important. But let's uh, let's listen to an interview that she uh, had with Alison Camerota on CNN. This is really fascinating. Thanks for being here. Melissa, what what was happening in that video that we were seeing where you were destroying that rack of face masks? What were you trying to accomplish? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I had really lost all touch with reality. I It was the worst day of my life. I was having a complete mental break. And really what had happened was I had fallen down the QAnon rabbit hole and fell hard, you know, and just lost it. I was completely triggered. And after that moment, you then went home. You were still... Um, irrational, so much so that your husband called the police. We have some video of that, too. You were just spouting um, crazy theories when the police showed up. You were clearly in distress, and they ended up having to take you in, I mean, for a mental evaluation, and I believe to a mental hospital. And so how did this happen, Melissa, that you fell so far down the conspiracy rabbit hole? You know, I really became all consumed in the QAnon conspiracy theories because of a mix of fear, anxiety, depression, you know, uncertainty, inconsistency with the information coming out about the pandemic. I felt terrified. I was losing my business. I was watching people around me lose their business. I I felt hopeless. I didn't know what to do. So I went to the Internet. You know, it started innocently enough, you know, kind of poking around on spirituality and wellness and new age pages that, you know, are just things that I'm interested in anyway. And then, you know, as soon as the algorithm hooked me in, it, it really only took a matter of weeks until I was in this terrifying eco chamber that really, you know, completely changed the way that I think and the way that I processed information. And what people saw happen in my garage that day, I mean, truly with my husband, who's my absolute best friend, is an ultimate act of love and selfless service for another person because he had to make a very difficult choice that day, you know, to save my life. You know, he had given me an ultimatum, you know, it's this family, you know, or, QAnon. And, and, you know, because I had become so obsessed with it, the save the children messaging spoke so deeply to who I am as a person. And I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't put it aside. It, it ruined me. And it really had a significant impact on my mental health. And as you say, I mean, your husband tried everything to pull you out, calling the police, as we see there in that um, video of you in your garage, that was one of his, the, the, That was just one of the things that he tried. I mean, he really tried to pull you out. And as you say, the algorithm hooked you in. And so you got into this kind of pattern of doom scrolling and fear scrolling, and it just feeds on itself. And so what happened, Melissa? How did you break the spell? Well, you know, I had to make, you know, a very serious decision for my for my health and my family. And that, you know, was voluntarily, you know, seeking mental health treatment. I went and I did a PTSD and trauma program, which was really ultimately what I was dealing with. And I was exacerbating the situation and some previous trauma and emotional stuff that, you know, I had failed to deal with in my life. Um, and, And I had to make the conscious choice to go and get help for that. 
that, you know, and I invested myself into that program. You know, I continue to go to therapy and slowly but surely, you know, work to rebuild my life back. And I wrote a book about it. And, and you know, I really committed to helping other people escape from this because I really believe that it's a cult. It operates like a cult in every single way. And people don't realize that they're being consumed by QAnon until it's too late. It's genuinely hard to believe that the person we just listened to is the same individual in that video. Good for her. Like, I am all about positive reinforcement. If you genuinely change for the better, I think that that needs to be celebrated. Good for you. And look, she's probably still going through rehabilitation, still trying to, like, unlearn the bad habits that she picked up during her QAnon days. But this is really just phenomenal news. Um, what struck me the most was how quickly she became entrenched in that, like, weird QAnon cult. So she sought out, you know, some resources when it comes to spirituality, well-being. Um, she found some kooky actors and the algorithm quickly put her on a path towards QAnon. And she got hooked in the span of two weeks. That's really, really alarming because what she's describing here is exactly what we've seen with the far right and how people kind of go down that right wing rabbit hole and end up becoming radicalized and joining the alt right. You know, young men who watch an anti-SJW video, they then get recommended Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder and then Stefan Molyneux, and they like that. They consume as much content as possible. The algorithm feeds them more, and then they eventually go down this path where they are completely brainwashed, and the same thing happened. Like, it really shows you how much big tech and social media controls our lives and how these algorithms are set up to keep us coming back to the platform and how that may be dangerous and how as individuals we need to be much more responsible in the way that we consume media like that the resources that we listen to question the motives of the individuals who we hear talking and yes that includes me as well she says i had really lost touch with reality i fell down the rabbit hole and lost it and she says that the way that QAnon affected her was it literally changed the way that she processed information it changed the way that she thought that is really substantial like to me i always viewed QAnon as one of the dumbest conspiracy theories you know it's not compelling to me it's not even a fun conspiracy theory like ufos or uh, illuminati or something of that nature like this is a more boring dry conspiracy theory but it doesn't matter like once you're in you're in and any evidence to the contrary that doesn't penetrate the bubble that you've created for yourself because you put yourself in these echo chambers where they constantly reinforce one another and confirm each other's biases and it really makes for a dangerous situation and to her she's really lucky to have someone care for her her husband because without him she kind of implied that she wouldn't have come back to reality and this is why when i was talking about donald trump when after the election he was seemingly spiraling he wouldn't believe that he lost the election. He started to buy into his own delusions about Joe Biden steal stealing the election. This is why I stressed that like folks around Donald Trump need to intervene. Because at that point, like it's not going to be evidence that brings you back. Part of the issue is you need to have the desire to do better for yourself. But if you're going to trust anyone, it's going to be someone that you're close to, who you trust on a personal level. 
such as a friend or a family member. And without her husband, you know, um, who knows if she would have saw the light and, you know, uh, would have come back to reality. Now, there's also a really crucial component here that she touches on, mental health care. She got mental health treatment. I mean, this is someone who was a small business owner. She had money. So she had underlying mental health issues that weren't addressed, I'm assuming. And, you know, that kind of um, led to her going down this really bad path. And had she had mental health care, perhaps this could have been avoided. It emphasizes the importance of mental health care, but more importantly, it speaks to an issue in this country that nobody really seems to take seriously. It's that mental health care is health care. And if we're genuinely trying to help people overcome the delusions of grandeur and, you know, overcome these conspiracies that they buy into, they have to have mental health care. She was lucky enough to be able to have mental health care. But there are a lot of folks who are knee-deep in conspiracy theories who don't have what she had, mental health care, or don't have a loved one who's willing to intervene, but more importantly, have a therapist, have medication if need be, to help bring you back to reality. And that really is the tragedy of this story, because it speaks to how it's kind of a losing battle that we're fighting, because if we don't actually offer comprehensive health care in America with mental health care, then how do we expect to actually get through to these folks? Like we see the mainstream media talking about the need to deprogram QAnon conspiracy theorists, but nobody addresses the elephant in the room that a lot of these folks have underlying mental health issues. A lot of folks who don't have health care are susceptible to being duped by charlatans. I mean, it's not just about mental health care, but she was looking for, you know, uh, videos on natural health. Maybe she was seeking out homeopathy. Uh, she was looking for folks who would talk to her about spirituality. Like, imagine the danger that this poses. Let's say you have uh, back pain or you're you're sick and you don't have health care, so you can't see a doctor. So what does that lead to? Well, you do your own research and you could find yourself... Uh, you know, in, in the arms of some weird huckster on YouTube that pushes some weird cure and maybe you take this person's cure and you think that it helps you because a placebo effect is uh, is very strong and then you start trusting that person and then you get roped into whatever kooky thing they're pushing. I mean, without adequate healthcare and mental healthcare in America, this is going to continue to happen. Not just when it comes to QAnon, but we're going to allow charlatans to be emboldened by not offering people real health care. Because, you know, if you have a doctor, then odds are you'll be less likely to seek out help from some moron on YouTube who's telling you to, like, mix a couple of spices together to cure your sore throat. We need to offer people mental health care. Otherwise, folks are going to stay radicalized. Otherwise, their underlying mental health issues that perhaps led to them joining QAnon movements and cults aren't going to be addressed in a meaningful way. And I do want to emphasize that I'm not trying to tie conspiratorial thinking to mental illness because that's not necessarily the case. These are two different things. But in this one instance, I think that this individual demonstrates why healthcare, mental healthcare specifically, helped her in this instance. I do want to say, however, that there are, you know, reasons to believe that if people actually did have mental health care or health care in general, that would make them less prone to be duped by charlatans who are trying to basically profit off of them. 
and I speak from personal experience, like how easily there are so many charlatans that want to take advantage of you if you don't have mental health care. So when I was in my early 20s, I had just come out and my coming out process was cut short uh, because I was outed to everyone who ever knew me. Like, you know, I, I told like what, seven, maybe eight people that I was gay. And then in a day, just like that, everyone knew that I was gay and it was scary. I felt, you know, vulnerable. I felt physically threatened that there were folks that wanted to harm me. Um, and that led to me having a complete mental breakdown. And I developed a panic disorder where I would have constant panic attacks to the point where um, I felt like my, my life was ruined, like I had no control. And the issue is I couldn't afford a therapist. I couldn't afford a psychiatrist that would give me the treatment that I needed, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, luckily, I did have healthcare in the sense that I had like one of those shitty pre-ACA era plans where it's not really healthcare. If you have a medical emergency, like you're going to go bankrupt, but it does cover like doctor visits. So, you know, I was able to get medication, but that wasn't sufficient. I needed like the full treatment. I needed therapy. So since I couldn't get therapy, I couldn't afford like $200 an hour office visits to a psychiatrist or whatever I needed, uh, I sought out my own treatment. I went to YouTube, right? And I learned very quickly that there's a lot of charlatans who try to take advantage of you. So um, there'd be like these videos that are like 20 minutes long, 25 minutes long, and they uh, tell you how to overcome panic attacks. So I watched these and I thought, oh my God, this is great because these folks are describing exactly what I'm feeling and experiencing and the symptoms. And if they say that they overcome it, then maybe they can help me. But there's always a catch. At the end of these videos, they say, and this is how I overcame it. Subscribe to the seven or nine step program for $80 or $30 a month. This is my method. And now I live a normal life. So if you want to know how I overcame panic disorder, uh, then uh, you got to pay me. And I thought, wow, this is really disgusting. I'm doing everything in my power to help myself like do better because I can't afford a psychiatrist. And anything I've seen online are just folks trying to take advantage of me, trying to get me to pay. And I was almost like, I was so desperate that I wanted to pay, but I shouldn't be paying someone who's not a professional to teach me how to overcome panic attacks. And you know, most of these folks are complete frauds because you never like fully overcome it. You just learn how to deal with it. You, you know, uh, come up with coping mechanisms, but I, you know, I apply my situation to, you know, other folks situation and how if they got their mental health issues or health issues addressed, they would be a lot less inclined to seek out charlatans and conspiracy theorists online. And so I, there was kind of a red flag when she said, look, I created a book about this because I want to help people. If you truly want to help people, you offer that book for free. I mean, you can come up with a donation link and say, if you like the book, you can support me. But, uh, you know, if you genuinely want to help people who um, are in a same, you know, a similar predicament, you don't charge them for that. So don't buy her book. Um, we, we need people to have health care. Like someone writing a book about how they overcame the QAnon cult isn't sufficient. It's not going to be a long-term solution. Like, of course, we need to have conversations with these people. And these folks need resources, individuals who overcame this themselves. But it's not going to be a meaningful substitute to actual mental health care or health care. Because the implication of this is that had her husband not intervened and had her committed to receive the mental health care that she needed, maybe she'd still be in that 
QAnon bubble that she was in. People need healthcare. Now, I do want to move on to one more clip. This is a quick one. Um, she basically gives advice to folks who have a loved one who believe in QAnon and offers them some advice as to like what to do or more specifically like what not to do in dealing with these folks. What is your advice to other people who have may have a family member or friends who have fallen into QAnon? You know, I speak to people every day, family members who say, what, you know, what advice can you give my friend? Can you talk to my, my loved one, my sister, my mother? And it's, it's heartbreaking. It gives me chills just thinking about it because I know that these people have to be empowered to make the conscious choice to leave the cults themselves. The more that people, you know, berate them, call them names, call them stupid, you know, laugh at them, mock them, they are just going to dig their heels in harder and be Become more isolated, more scared, and more alone. So my advice is to love these people, understand these people, try to come to even ground and reason with them as best you can. Find things, common ground, things that you can agree on, and start there. And really try to isolate what their fears are and what's motivating the irrational behavior and obsession with QAnon. Because what what you'll probably find out it is motivated by fear, distrust you know, uncertainty, not necessarily hatred, not necessarily destruction, but these people can be helped, but they have to be empowered to do so. So I think that that's good advice. I think that it makes sense that name calling and shaming these people, that is not going to be conducive to them having a change of heart, of course. I, I think that part of it is, again, they have to have that desire to change themselves. And also there's got to be treatment if they genuinely are suffering from mental health issues. I mean, a lot of times, you know, they just get duped because, you know, there's a lapse in judgment. I'm not trying to imply that, like, everyone who's a conspiracy theorist has mental health issues, but I think that, you know, that that can result in more conspiratorial thinking if, you know, someone has underlying mental health issues that aren't addressed. Uh, but I, I will say this, though. I think that name-calling and shaming people, there is, I think, some value in making it socially unacceptable to believe really silly things. I'm not saying we should make fun of people who um, who think stupid things. Like, I'm not saying bully or harass individuals. But I think that if there is, like, an unequivocal denunciation almost, like a cultural response to a particular way of thinking, QAnon, for example, I do think that perhaps that can serve as a deterrent. I don't know, like how effective said deterrent will be at, you know, turning people off to conspiracy theorists. Um, but I'm worried that, like, the end of QAnon, which it will come to an end because it's over, it's been disproven, it's going to lead to, like, this mini-industry of people who left QAnon who are now trying to sell self-help things to other people and profit off of it when in actuality like if we're if we're serious as a society about helping these folks in a real way and helping others and really educating people we need mental health care we can't disaggregate mental health care from regular health care and we also need education because what she says here is like this conspiracy theory changed the way that i think but educating people offering them free college like that really helps the way that you think like you know, conservatives always talk about how colleges brainwash liberals and they basically train people to be liberal, but that's not actually the case. Like when I went to college, I became an atheist. I, you know, realized that I was gay. And it's not necessarily because they told me that atheism and gayness is good. It's because 
the way that you think is more open-minded. You read philosophy, you, you educate yourself, and the way that you're thinking changes. So that way you're not thinking using your emotions. You try to be more you know, uh, practical and logical and rational in the way that you approach various issues. So overall, I, you know, I absolutely applaud this individual for speaking out and changing. I think this is really good. I think that she can use her new knowledge and change of heart to do good. I'm so sorry that I have to do this to you, but I have to remind you that Donald Trump exists. Yeah. <laughs> we were all taking a mental break from the stress that he causes with his dumbass tweets and whatnot, but I've got to talk about this story. It is absolutely fascinating to me, and I can't pass this up. So we didn't actually address this on the program, I don't think anyways, but about a month or so ago, Donald Trump reportedly floated the idea of starting his own political party, and he would call this the Patriot Party. And the idea is that this party is necessary because the Republican Party is just out of step with its conservative base, and they're not extreme enough for Donald Trump and his sycophants. If you can imagine that, thinking that Republicans are not extreme enough for you. But that's the goal of starting this new party. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily sure what to make of it. I don't know that Donald Trump is actually going to follow through with this. I think this is just a thought that he has. He's probably more interested in starting Trump TV or something like that. Uh, but the Hill and Harris X took a poll of Republican Party voters between January 28th and 29th, and they wanted to gauge interest in a new party with Donald Trump as the leader. And to my surprise, there was a lot more support for this than I could have ever anticipated. The results are just shocking, and I want to talk about this. So The Hill reports, a majority of Republican voters said if former President Trump were to start a new political party, they would likely join a new Hill-Harris ex-poll finds. 64% Jesus Christ of registered Republican voters in the January 28th through 29th survey said they'd join a new political party led by the former president, including 32% who said they would very likely join. By contrast, 36% of Republican respondents said they are either very or somewhat unlikely to join. The survey found 28% of independents and 15% of Democrats said they'd likely join a third party led by Trump. 37% of voters overall said if Trump started a new political party, they'd likely join. Last month, Trump reportedly floated the idea of starting a new political party. However, no concrete plan concerning a Trump-led third party has emerged. And that is probably because starting an entirely new political party is a lot of work. It requires resources and organizing. And Donald Trump isn't going to do this unless somebody else does it for him. And there are enough people that would be willing to put into work for him. Uh, this is, it's crazy. 64% of Republicans would jump ship for Donald Trump. Wow. Now, I've got to talk through the implications of this, because this can go one of many ways. I think the obvious thing that would happen is, at least in the short term, this would cause catastrophic damage to, to the Republican Party, because conservative voters would now be splitting their votes between the Republican Party and the Patriot Party, which paves the way for Democrats to get a plurality in almost every single election. So, if Donald Trump were to do this, this would be great for Democrats, albeit in the short term only. Long term, however, I don't necessarily think this would pave the way to three parties existing or pave the way to a multi-party system, because I truly believe in Duverger's law. I wish it 
didn't always hold true or never held true, but it always holds true. Duverger's law, for those who don't know, is um, the idea that posits that anytime a political system has a majoritarian first-past-the-post winner-take-all system, you're always going to see two parties. Doesn't matter what, you know, you're going to see a lot of parties pop up from time to time, but they're never going to be electorally viable. You're always going to see two major parties in the United States. So the question is, like, how would there still be two parties if Trump creates a third party? Well, I think what would ultimately happen is that the conservative base would be consolidated. I think that more than anything, rather than this leading to like a long-lasting multi-party system, what would ultimately happen is this would catalyze party realignment, where you see the remaining Republicans, such as Mitt Romney, uh, maybe even Liz Cheney, they would jump ship because they don't want to join the Donald Trump party, and they would become Democrats. And as a result, Democrats, ideologically speaking, would embrace them and become more conservative. And then you see the Donald Trump party become the de facto conservative party in American politics. And therefore, you'd see two main parties again. Either the Donald Trump party would, you know, um, absorb the Republican party or vice versa. Either way, at most, I think this could cause long-term party realignment. I don't think that would be good. If the Democratic Party embraced folks like Mitt Romney, which they absolutely would, or Susan Collins, anti-Trump Republicans, they would just become more conservative, and the right-wing party in America would become even more right-wing than it is already. So, you know, at face value, I feel inclined to think, well, okay, go ahead, Trump, do this, because you're just gonna, you know, uh, split the Republican base, but long-term, this could be worse for American politics in terms of like what it does to the Overton window. But this is really fascinating because it really gives us some insight into the habits of Republican Party voters. They're a lot less disciplined than Democratic Party voters because what we usually see more often than not is a level of loyalty to the Democratic Party even among socialists and communist anarchists that we just don't see on the other side. You know, consistently in every election, the Libertarian gets more votes than the Green Party candidate. And now, when Donald Trump considers starting a new party, you see a lot of Republicans, they're willing to shed that Republican label like that and support this new party. When I think that you wouldn't really see that on the Democratic Party side. Like, in theory, if Bernie Sanders were to do something similar to this, I think that there would be a number of folks that would be inclined to leave the Democratic Party and support this new party with Bernie Sanders, hypothetically speaking. But I think the number wouldn't be 64%. I think it would be a lot less than that. Because, you know, left-wing people are a lot more... They're in tune with, like, the needs of the people. And a lot of folks won't risk voting for a third party if it means that Republicans will have an easier time winning. Whereas Republican voters don't really care if that if they have to like break a few eggs to make an omelet, lose a couple of elections, they'll do it. And in the long term, that's probably more strategically beneficial for conservative voters in America, because if you're willing to be ruthless, then you can win. But on the left, you know, um, I can't see any actual real momentum for a third party unless we get electoral reform. And what this tells us is that there is a demand for third parties. 
or more specifically a multi-party system where we have like five to six viable party options. Um, because I mean, if you look at public opinion polls, most people, a plurality of folks, they identify as independents, not Democrats or Republicans. Republicans are actually a minority party and Democrats as well, but to a lesser extent. And so what I've been trying to push is electoral reform. If you want to have a multi-party system in America, which we all should, you've got to change the system. Otherwise, I just, I can't see that happening. The duopoly is always going to reign supreme unless we get true electoral reform. And that sucks. Like, it's not just the electoral institutions. I also think that the two-party duopoly is culturally ingrained in America in a number of ways. But imagine the difference that having a multi-party system would make. So think about how unfair and how rigged our system is currently against third parties. So we have a majoritarian winner-take-all system, which means that in every single district, you're only going to see one winner. So if I live in a district where the Republican got 52% of the vote and I'm part of the 48% that didn't vote for that Republican, well, 48% and myself in this district, we're not going to be represented. And that Republican has no incentive to represent the people who didn't vote for him, because why would you? If they're not going to vote for you, then you appeal to the people who helped you get elected. Now, imagine if we changed that, and we increased the district magnitude from one to, say, three, District magnitude just means like the number of representatives you send to Congress per district. So let's say that we had three representatives per district. Well, instead of everyone except the winner getting representation, well, let's say in that same scenario, the Republican got 52%, the Democrat got 35%, and, you know, some Communist Party got 15%. Well, if you're in the top three, since three seats will be awarded those individuals get representation. So now I have someone in Congress, even if we only made up 15% representing my interests. This is why proportional representation is something that I try to talk about as much as possible, because proportional representation gives more people a voice. And it's really difficult to live in a representative pluralistic society if you shut out so many voices, if you force people to constantly vote for the lesser of two evils because they fear that they're going to help another party who they disagree with the most get elected. So we need electoral reform. Now, I will say that getting electoral reform, this is incredibly difficult to do, but even if there was a true grassroots movement around this issue and we all pushed for electoral reform, that's not going to solve everything because we live in a capitalist society and capitalism is very corrosive. So those new parties that pop up are just as likely to be corrupted as the Democrats were. They were once the party of the working people, but look at them now. So, you know, having a multi-party system, that's not going to solve everything. But does it help? I'd argue, yeah, it does. So overall, the main takeaway is I can't really see Trump's move here leading to long-term change, electorally speaking. I don't think this will permanently like thwart the duopoly and any benefits that we'd see would probably be short-term. But long-term, I think we're always going to see two parties unless there was a real concerted effort at the grassroots level to fight for electoral reform. But that's tough because to get electoral reform, we basically have to convince people who got elected with this system to change the system that helped them get elected. We have to force or con convince Republicans and Democrats to minimize the amount of power they have 
and change the system so that way more parties can get power and that way their parties have less power like it's it's so difficult it really is tricky but i mean this is all speculation who knows what trump could do uh perhaps he really can create a third party that has staying power for a decade or two we don't know because trump is a political phenomenon who has a cold following so they're going to follow him regardless of what he does but ultimately will he do this i don't know again i think he's probably more inclined to opt for like trump tv or something like that either way this is a fascinating conversation to have um it does show you that there is certainly a demand for multi-part uh, multiple parties and a multi-party system but it's just disturbing that it's because folks think that republicans aren't extreme enough like that's that's pretty uh, alarming uh either way uh i'll continue to update you on this uh on this development if trump creates this new party that is going to be entertaining at a minimum bobby lewis a fellow comrade on twitter did all of us a really big favor he took time out of his day valuable time to uh watch one american news network so we don't have to so he can report back to us about the silly things that they're doing and um what he found was a bizarre creepy cringeworthy tribute that they aired to donald trump now it's weird like the way that this tribute portrays donald trump is as if he's like this noble honorable figure who served as president you know a as a way of sacrificing himself to fight for the country that he loves but like this is a nar narcissistic idiot who's a buffoon who just ran for president because he wanted attention. Uh, nonetheless, this is um, their tribute to Donald Trump. Let's watch. Well, despite endless lies and attacks from Democrats in the media, President Trump and the administration fought for the country over the past four years. And now the network would like to share this tribute to his accomplishments. Take a look. If by Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream, and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them hold on if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but are none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, 
you'll be a man, my son. That was extremely creepy and difficult to watch. Ask yourself this, would an impartial, objective, serious news network air something like that? Like, that is literally something that teenagers would upload to YouTube, but not about, like, a political figure, about their favorite band. That's not, that's not normal. That's not something that serious news networks would air. I mean, does OAN have any capacity whatsoever to be impartial and criticize Donald Trump or Republicans? If you asked an anchor to uh, maybe just even name one thing that they disagree with Donald Trump on, would they be able to do that? Like, it's just, this is them being sycophants. This is them being bootlickers. This is basically uh, state media, or it was state media when Donald Trump had power. Now they're actually going to be in opposition to the state since, you know, Joe Biden is president. But it's just, it's really strange. Who does this? Who thought this was a good idea? But I mean, look, I'm sure that what they're doing is lucrative. They know the audience that they're playing to. And I'm sure that like the boomers who were watching this, who worshipped Donald Trump, shed some tears. But I don't think that they portrayed Donald Trump accurately, to say the least. So what I did was I took the liberty to change some of the B-roll that they used. Because I think that my version of this tribute is much more accurate and representative of the Donald Trump who we all knew. Enjoy. If by Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet, don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but are none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm really sorry to the folks who were listening to this on Spotify and iTunes because you just had to listen to the same thing twice and it was the same for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so to give audio listeners some context, um, you know, I, I of course, I, I played the role of the greatest hits from Donald Trump, him making the alpha move to hold the umbrella up to protect himself, but not his wife, great partner he is, uh, looking directly into the sun, uh, him walking up a plane with uh, toilet paper on his shoe. As I'm talking through this now, I'm realizing that I forgot the epic picture of him where he's sitting in a truck and he's like, yeah, when they brought him trucks to cheer him up. I'm disappointed in myself for forgetting that. And I think that as the day goes on, I'm going to remember more things that I should have included. Nonetheless, I think you get the point. Donald Trump is a goofy individual and nobody who's a serious person takes him seriously. Nobody. Nobody takes him seriously. And the folks who loved him are deeply, deeply misguided. And now we have a very long project of uh, bringing these folks back to reality. But who knows how long that's going to take. Either way, the tribute that OAN aired was, um, it was shit. Mine was much better. Not too long ago, we learned that a British court is not going to be granting the United States its request to extradite Julian Assange, WikiLeaks founder, to the US on grounds that our prison system would not be able to accommodate Julian Assange, and if he were to be extradited here, he would be at great risk. His health would literally be endangered. It says a lot about our prison system, and it's accurate. Um, however, the United States does have a limited window to appeal that decision and try to make their case once again. So, the question was, would Joe Biden's administration be following in Trump's footsteps and continuing this attack on freedom of the press? And the answer is yes. So, as Reuters reporter Mark Hosenball reports, President Joe Biden's administration plans to continue to seek to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange from the United Kingdom to the United States to face hacking conspiracy charges, the U.S. Justice Department said. Justice Department spokesman Mark Ramondi on Tuesday said the U.S. government will continue to challenge a British judge's ruling last month that Assange should not be extradited to the United States because of the risk he would commit suicide. In a January 4th ruling, the judge, Vanessa Baratzer said, I find that the mental condition of Mr. Assange is such that it would be oppressive to extradite him to the United States of America. The British judge set Friday as a deadline for the United States to appeal her ruling forbidding Assange's extradition. Ramondi said the United States will challenge Baratzer's ruling. We continue to seek his extradition. Obama's Justice Department decided not to seek Assange's extradition on the grounds that what Assange and WikiLeaks did was too similar to journalistic activities protected by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Trump administration officials stepped up public criticism of Assange and WikiLeaks only weeks after taking office in January 2017 and subsequently filed a series of increasingly harsh criminal charges accusing Assange of participating in a hacking conspiracy. So this is uh, very, very disappointing, albeit not too surprising. I was hoping that Joe Biden would take the same stance as Obama had here, but unfortunately, like, once you ring the bell, once you start going after press outlets for publishing leaks, it's kind of hard to unring that bell, right? Once the precedent is created, then, you know, you have an incentive to continue that trend while not looking as bad as your predecessor, and that's what Joe Biden is doing, and it is uh, deeply, deeply troubling, and I think it's reasonable for us to expect progressive leaders who know what's at stake to speak out about this. So I expect Bernie Sanders, love him with peace and love, to speak out 
and condemn Joe Biden's actions here. I expect progressives, members of the squad, such as Mondaire Jones, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to speak up because this isn't about Julian Assange. This is about the precedent that it would set if he were, in fact, to be extradited to the United States for prosecution because what the U.S. government is doing if they were successful here is they are heavily disincentivizing journalist outlets from publishing leaks that the government doesn't want to get out. Now, this is just one side of the story. The other side of the story is that whistleblowers have been aggressively targeted by Obama's administration, by Trump's administration, and really, if you want to get the full picture, then you have to look at what was published by Edward Snowden, by Reality Winner, uh, what Chelsea Manning gave to Julian Assange, you know, uh, and what she exposed was war crimes being committed by our government, and they claimed that that shouldn't have been published because it poses a threat to national security that has not been proven, by the way. Uh, however, since that was published by WikiLeaks, they're trying to prosecute Julian Assange and WikiLeaks for that. This is unprecedented, and I don't think that people realize the importance of this case. This is not about the 2016 election. This is not about the uh, emails from John Podesta that WikiLeaks published. This is about war crimes that WikiLeaks exposed, that our government is doing. So I hope that everyone on the left collectively steps up their advocacy for not just Julian Assange, but also whistleblowers. We need to protect freedom of the press and also whistleblowers that give them leaks. So Edward Snowden, reality winner, Chelsea Manning as well, who is frequently a target, who uh, she's been locked up to basically get her to rat out Julian Assange and whatnot. And she hasn't spoken because she's principled and she believes in the First Amendment and the importance of freedom of the press. So, um, you know, this, again, isn't super surprising, but it is deeply disturbing that this is going on. Our government is trying to prosecute a journalist outlet for publishing leaks, and not many people are really paying attention to this story. Like, the implications of this would be deeply troubling if this actually were to bear out and the U.S. was successful. And to anyone who uh, were uh, really worried about Trump's attacks on the press. You should be screaming at the top of your lungs. You should have been screaming at the top of your lungs about this. But, you know, if they weren't concerned with the story when Trump was prosecuting Julian Assange, I don't expect liberals to really be concerned with it if Joe Biden, a Democratic president, is doing it. But I do hope that comrades in Congress and leftists speak up because this is extremely troubling, and it doesn't bode well for press freedom in America. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. That is all that I have for you this week. As usual, before we leave, I want to thank everyone who supports the show, all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members. Thank you all so much. Uh, you are amazing. You are the essence of solidarity. Uh, yeah, so next week, is uh hopefully going to be a longer episode i do have a guest coming on the program which i am not going to reveal yet I have some exciting things planned I, I hope you'll find them exciting but yeah uh, I'm, I'm done this week so i'll see you all next week take care everyone my name is mike figueredo this has been the humanist report peace you know you 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 know you know the, you know the thing.
you're getting nervous, man. 